Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Heard Tell Show. It is Tuesday. May the 10th, year of our Lord, 2022, just keeps clipping right along. Hope y'all are doing well wherever you are, across the street and around the world. Got a couple different stories we want to talk about on today's program. So glad you're with us. Uh, over in the UK, developing story. We talked about Boris Johnson getting in trouble for drinking on the job during COVID restrictions and having himself a little party. His opposite, uh, Keir Starmer. Now he's in trouble for the same thing. So you have the prime minister and the right honorable opposition in similar circumstances. We'll touch on that story. We end the program. We always go on a good note. This one takes a minute to get going, but we get there. Uh, A former uh, Coast Guardman from the Vietnam era wound up spending 27 years in prison, has found a way to redeem himself post-prison in a very special way that honors both his service and his very own family. We'll get into that story at the close of the program. Also, Boeing is leaving Chicago. You may remember about 20 years ago, right around 9-11, they famously left Seattle. They're on the move again. We'll tell you where, we'll tell you why, and we'll speculate why they picked that destination. Also, some of the cultural and political influences that might have went into that. One of our favorites on the show today, M. Carpenter. Love talking to her. Senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. She's an attorney, and we're going to talk about the story about the LSAT, the ABA Uh, saying that the LSATs will not be mandatory. They can be ignored. She thinks they won't be. What is an LSAT? What's involved in it? Why is that important? We also talk about law school, what it takes to become a lawyer. And we fold it into an ongoing conversation about student loan debt. She has a personal story about that. She has strong opinions on it. And the legal uh, field and opinion going to law school is one of those that takes a lot of money to go to. So it's a good time to discuss those issues. M. Carpenter, one of our favorite people, one of the smartest people we know, insightful. Make sure you're following her. She is on our program today as our guest. But first, I want to start here. Uh, There's a lot of World War II rhetoric getting thrown around. Uh, One is because we're... uh, approaching VE Day. Uh, But not only that, uh, Vladimir Putin and his insane war of aggression against Ukraine that is murdering civilians and destroying cities keeps invoking World War II. And he keeps saying they're going to denazify Ukraine. And there's been a lot of Jewish and anti-Semitic rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin, including uh, foreign minister, so bad that allegedly Putin ended up apologizing uh, to Prime Minister Bennett of Israel on the phone. Can't confirm that. That just came from the Israeli side. But if true, that's pretty remarkable that you give Vladimir Putin to apologize for anything. Uh, What's all this rhetoric? Well, this story touches on some of that to put it back in the proper perspective. I know we're a culture and politics show, but it's important to have perspective. Washington Post. I want you to hear this story. Seek it out and read the whole thing. We're going to just touch on part of it. Uh, But from the Washington Post, this is written by Sarah Pullman Bailey, 
excellent piece. When given the choice to put his religious identity on his metal dog tag, World War II soldier Albert Belmont did what many Jewish soldiers did at the time. His family members says he put a P for Protestant out of fear of what Nazi Germany soldiers could do to him if he were captured. For more than seven decades, Belmont was buried under a Latin cross, what soldiers were generally buried under unless they had an H on their dog tag for Hebrew. In April, however, his daughter and granddaughters traveled to France to see the cross above his body replaced with a star David, reflecting his Jewish identity. Belmont's changed headstone as part of a larger operation called Operation Benjamin, working to correct the headstones of hundreds of Jewish soldiers who died in World Wars I and II. Barbara Belmont, who lives in Alexandria, Virginia, and her two daughters joined six other families on the trip to Europe to participate in the ceremony for the changing of their relatives' headstones. Quote, in a way, it was like giving this very old lady closure, Belmont said. She's 80 years old. I feel like I attended my father's funeral. It was the most wonderful feeling. There's pictures of it. And in the Jewish custom, there are stones on top of that Star of David headstone. Uh, back to the piece. For most of her life, Belmont knew nothing about her biological father. He had died when she was three, and her mother never wanted to speak of him because the death was so painful. Albert Belmont had voluntarily enlisted as a private in the Army when he was 32 years old in 1944, considered old at the time. He arrived in Europe in November 1, 1944, and he was fatally shot within a month on November the 30th. Belmont said she visited her father's grave at Lorraine American Cemetery 30 years ago when she was traveling for work, and she remembers not seeing many stars of David among the grave sites. She was busy raising her two girls, so she never thought anything more of it, about the Latin crosses above the graves. During the recent Operation Benjamin trip, some of the other families said they shared Belmont's experience. No one in their families would talk about the soldiers who had died. Whenever the song Johnny Comes Marching Home was played in grade school, I would start crying, Belmont said. I don't think I understood why this happened. Um, Operation Benjamin was created by after Jacob Shaker, an Orthodox rabbi and professor at Yeshiva University, was leading a tour of the cemeteries in Normandy, France in 2013. And while there, looking around, thought the numbers stars of David looked look low. So they went to the numbers. 2.6% of U.S. casualties in World War II were Jewish, and thus... For the Normandy invasion, there should have been about 250 headstones, and there's only about 149. He said they picked a random soldier's name who had been buried in Normandy and who had a Jewish-sounding last name, Benjamin Gerdowski. They dug into the family history and found out he was, get this, folks, a Ukrainian immigrant who grew up in the Bronx and led a Jewish life. After two years of work with the American Battlefield Monuments Commission and the U.S. government agency that oversees foreign cemeteries for soldiers who died in two world wars, Gradetsky's headstone was changed to a star David. Ali Benzencourt, spokeswoman for the commission, said it has a unique relationship with Operation Benjamin because the headstones are not changed very often. The Latin crosses, she said, was not necessarily just for religious regions. For that time and era, it was just a symbol of, quote, someone died here for a reason. Soldiers who had been killed were buried under a Latin cross by default unless they were specifically mentioned as another faith. But by that time, the Jewish community asked the military to bury soldier Jew, Jewish soldiers under a star of David. However, there were cases such as Albert Belmont's in which the soldiers wanted to obscure their identity because of the fight against Germany and the ongoing Holocaust. We really, truly want to get this story right, she said. Now, Lamb, who Operation Benjamin has a relationship with the commission and what they know, the pieces of evidence they need to confirm some Jewish's identity, birth, census, bar mitzvah records, among other things, and it takes about 30 days to get it all approved. He said there are about four to 550 veterans who are incorrectly buried. So far, they have changed 19 headstones, and corrections for 27 more are in the works. 
people that ask why the bodies aren't returned to Israel or the States is because of a national monument. The bodies cannot be removed. Why are we talking about this? Like I said, the rhetoric about war two is hot and heavy right now. The use of Jewish imagery and Nazi imagery is being used right now today. And frankly, some of the people using that imagery are acting a lot like the Nazis did murdering civilians, committing genocide, against people, groups that won't bow the knee to them, leveling cities, murdering civilians, using weapons that are outlawed. Why do we talk about this? Did you know that there was a Ukrainian refugee buried at Normandy? I didn't until I read this piece. Isn't it funny how, while history doesn't repeat, it does rhyme, and there's always threads to pull on that bring us from the past to the present and lead us to the future. There was a time not that long ago where American Jewish servicemen felt the need to hide their faith for their own well-being from the enemy. And there was a time not too long before that where very many people in America had to hide various identities or overcome obvious ones like race, gender, and other things to try to get ahead in a world that had prejudices against them. We've improved on that, or we like to think we have at least. So it's important to understand things like getting the proper headstones. That American Lorraine Cemetery, I have personally been there. I am telling you, if you ever get an opportunity to go, you should. It will move you in ways that I cannot express in words. What these men sacrificed for us to give us the freedoms we have today is important. Giving them little pieces of their own identity back, like their proper faith groups, like their proper ethnicities, like their own stories and their own words, is very important. Why do we lead with that? Because we have people like Vladimir Putin who want to give alternate histories based only on their own wickedness. So it is important for the best and bravest of our greatest generation, like young Albert here, that his story gets told correctly, and that the false stories of the Vladimir Putins of the world, who falsely want to talk about denazifying, get drowned out by the stories of people like Albert, who actually did fight the Nazis, paid the ultimate price for it, and now, thankfully, is being recognized for his faith, for his sacrifice, and for what hundreds of thousands of others just like him have meant to the history of the world. That's something always worth leading off on. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Let's back up for a second because there was some news in the headlines over the last couple of days. Jazz Shaw wrote in hot air about Boeing moving to Northern Virginia. But as he noted in his piece, let's back up to October 7th of last year. Reuters headline 20 years ago, just before the 9-11 attacks on the United States crippled the aerospace industry, Boeing moved its headquarters from its historic Seattle manufacturing hub to a stylish Chicago skyscraper. The move was central to Boeing's plans to forge a new identity as a diversified global juggernaut, distancing top executives from the daily operations inside far-flung business units and getting closer to Wall Street and major customers. Of course, Chicago is one of the great airport hubs, too, in the country. Two decades on, in the midst of a fresh crisis shaking the industry, Boeing's corporate hub is in the state of limbo. This is from last October. A new crop of top executives based mainly on the coast are managing industrial and safety certification programs as the lingering fallout from the 737 MAX and coronavirus Crises both enveloped the company at the same time. Tax incentives heaped on Boeing by Chicago and Illinois run out at end year's end. These were 20-year tax breaks. They're moving again. Boeing is moving to Northern Virginia, basically the Washington, D.C. experts. 
why are they doing that? Well, like they just pointed out, the tax breaks are ended. And um, Jazz goes on in his piece at Hot Air. You can go check that out for yourself. He points out things in Chicago, like the administration of the city, the crime rate and things like that. And then he says, but why Virginia? Why not Texas or Florida or one of the other red states that have been courting businesses away from increasingly violent cities? Virginia is in the process of reducing taxes and decreasing regulations. They've also beefed up law enforcement. It also didn't hurt that Virginia's new governor, Glenn Youngkin, working behind the scenes to trying to tempt Boeing to move into the state. This is Jazz Shaw writing. Turns out Youngkin opened up private negotiations with Boeing on the day it was inaugurated. Boeing CEO David Calhoun even made a point of thanking Youngkin for his leadership in his efforts when he announced the move. The municipal government of Chicago needs to wake up and smell the coffee burning on the stove because Boeing isn't the only major outfit pulling up stakes and fleeing. The Citadel Hedge Fund has left for Florida. The Chicago Bears are moving to the suburbs. And United Airlines moved 1,300 employees out of downtown Chicago, and other companies are planning or having announced similar moves. Without some serious and immediate changes, Chicago could realistically be coming at risk of becoming like other cities such as Camden, New Jersey. Problems with crime and corruption, you get the idea. I want to go back to something that was in the original piece, federal regulators. I understand all the tax breaks and such. But I suspect the reason a lot of companies like Amazon, like a lot of tech firms are opening up shop in the D.C. area, that's where the power is. That's where the lobbying is. And you got to be close to the federal regulators and the politicians and the K Street folks and all that fundraising and all that power base. If you want to be a player, I suspect Occam's Razor might show us they just want to be where the influence is because Boeing lives and dies on those defense contracts and they can't do without them, no matter where they're located headquarter wise. Anyway, go read the pieces for yourself, do your own research, make up your own mind. Just my humble but accurate opinion on why Boeing is moving. As for Chicago, uh, we overblow Chicago's problems sometimes, especially on the right, it's become something of a bloody shirt, but Illinois has a ton of corruption. They have a lot of bad mismanagement and crime is a real problem in Chicago. They need to get it together because not just, just corporations, but also the citizenry that can vote with their feet may start doing so. Chicago is a wonderful city, but if you don't run it right, that's not going to matter to the people that are going to have options. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. 
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, one of our favorites. She is the senior editor for Ordinary-Times.com. She is an attorney. Uh, she is a lot of things in the writing community, and people on Twitter mostly like her. Our friend Tim Carpenter is joining <laughs> us once again. How are you, ma'am? I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are the HIPAA wars? <laughs> it's a very angry HIPAA. Got to be careful. <laughs> for those of you not paying attention, uh, since she is a lawyer and does uh, healthcare related things, HIPAA is one of her, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, things of the moment she pays high attention to. So if you mess it up on Twitter, you're likely to get a tweet about it. But uh, today we're going to talk a little lawyer ease. You are a lawyer, one of them law splainer type people. What do you make of the ABA talking about getting rid of the LSAT? Now, we've heard this in the news a lot lately. Uh, there was some debate, I thought, pretty unfairly um, during the Supreme Court nominations about uh, LSAT scores. You wrote a piece of Ordinary Dash Times that pretty much dispelled that. However, uh, if we're going to get rid of something, we have to discuss what its actual use is. So let's just start there with the nomenclature. What is the LSAT? What's it supposed to be? And what is it being used as that folks want it reformed? The LSAT is the law school admissions test. And just to be clear, what the ABA is doing is they are not, quote, getting rid of the LSAT. The LSAT's still existing. What, what it is, is the rule um, that the ABA used to have for accredited law schools was that they were required to require an entrance exam, an LSAT or other. Um, some some used GREs, but they what they have done is they've said that they are no longer requiring accredited law schools to require an entrance exam at all. They still can. And I suspect a lot of schools probably will continue to do so for a variety of reasons. But the LSAT is a standardized test like a, like the GRE or the MCAT, which is the medical school equivalent. And it is a, um, an aptitude test to, that's designed, whether it does it accurately or well, I don't, can't speak to that, but it is designed to determine whether or not uh, one per, a person's reasoning skills, their logic skills, their... Um, whether they actually have a, a good chance of success in law school based on how they think, um, how they solve problems, their comprehension, things like that. So it's not a test about what do you know about the law. You don't know you you know theoretically know nothing about the law before you have actually gone to law school. So there are no legal questions on the LSAT. So that's what it is, and the intention of it is to, as a measure, a metric to help law schools accept students who they believe have a chance of success. We went now we went over this when we did the Supreme Court nomination hearings for uh, soon to be Justice uh, Jackson here shortly. Uh, just to tee it up, though, for the trivia buffs out there, how many law questions are on the LSAT? Zero. There are no legal questions on the LSAT. You are not presupposed to have any legal knowledge before you sit for that exam. You have not been to law school yet. They don't expect you to know the law. So just for the people that will never have the great pleasure of taking an LSAT, uh, I'm not one of them because I actually took the thing just on a large just to see how I do on it. What it, This isn't like a normal test. This isn't, this isn't just fill in bubble fields. This isn't, you know, flashcards. Explain to people what is actually going on on this test, because a lot of folks Maybe they haven't done logic problems and things like this. Just kind of given a little bit of an explainer of what the test is actually like to take. Uh, it's been um, 
couple of decades since I took it, so I don't recall every section. Um, I know, you know, there are, like any other standardized test, where you have to read a passage and answer questions about it. And um, But my favorite part is, as you mentioned, the logic puzzles. And, and those are the ones where you have a list of uh, uh, statements, such as, you know, there are five people at a party, and the person in red is sitting next to Mary. Mary's not sitting next to the person in green. The person in green is eating chicken and, you know, things like that. And based on the information you're giving, you are supposed to figure out where is everybody sitting, what color are they wearing, and what are they eating. It sounds funny or um, confusing, but, and a lot of people really hate those puzzles. I love them. I have an app on my phone where I do them for fun. Um, so that's one of the one of the sections. And then again, I think the rest is mostly uh, reading comprehension and, and the ability to write clearly. Yeah, well, that explains a few things about your personality. We were wondering about that you do those things for fun. M. Carpenter, lawyer, joining us, senior writer at, at Ordinary-Times.com. What, what's your general feel on this, though? I know you said this is going to be more of a guidance, but the ABA does have outsized influence. Um, I know you don't think they're going to get rid of it totally, but what, what is your feel that the reaction at the academic level, at the law school level is going to be for this? Well, I think that, like I said, I don't think that a lot of law schools are going to be eager to dump it, to get rid of it altogether. Um, I actually did very well on the LSAT. Um, and it's a good thing that I did because I admit that my undergraduate grades, they were not um, not particularly impressive. You know, I graduated, I made it through, but um, they weren't, I wasn't, you know, top of my class or anything. Uh, but however, I, as I said, I did very well on this LSAT and I applied to four law schools. I was accepted to four law schools. Um, three of them were out of state. So, and those are, and I mentioned that just because it's difficult to get into an out of state law school in general. And so I can tell you that I, from my experience, they look at the LSAT score very closely, especially if you do very well. In fact, one of the schools that I applied to actually solicited me to apply. Uh, it was Rutgers at the Camden campus in New Jersey, sent me um, a packet asking me to apply, waived the application fee uh, because they were actually trying to prove or trying to show a correlation between LSAT scores and law school success being stronger than academic uh, achievement or, you know, your grades from undergrad. Um, unfortunately, the money they were offering me was not enough to make me want to live in Camden, New Jersey for three years. And so I didn't go. But um, so I think, you know, there, there are schools that believe it to be a better indicator than, than just a GPA of one's ability to succeed in law school. And, um, and for me, I think that was important because not that I couldn't have done better in, in college, but I commuted I, uh, for a lot of my time there at WVU. I, I drove back and forth. Um, I worked full time. My grades weren't as good as they could have been. Now, if I'd had all the time in the world to study, then, you know, I may have done better, but it wasn't, I wasn't in a position to do that. So um, the LSAT, I think, gave me a leg up to make up for some of that, that time I um, couldn't put into my uh, undergraduate schooling. For others, I know standardized testing is a negative. They don't necessarily test well, and it can be unfair to them if they are judged just on the LSAT um, more than their grades. So I think the adoption of a hybrid approach is maybe a, a good idea uh, for law schools to look into. Um, I think there should be some... 
there there needs to be some weeding of law school uh, applicants, and and not everyone gets accepted. There is one school that that was known for basically accepting anyone who applied. Um, and it was not an accredited school. Don't know if it is now. It wasn't for a very long time, I know. And what they did was they would basically let in anybody who applied and was willing to pay their very, very exorbitant annual tuition. And then after the first year, they would basically kick out half the class for poor academic performance or for not, not doing as well um, as, they, as they should. In the meantime, they pocketed their money and left them with the debt. So I think there is something to be said for trying to figure out who is going to do well in law school. And I think, and that's why this test measures how you are, your ability to answer questions in a certain way or to think logically, because they think that those are the skills necessary for law school success. Since you brought it up and it's been um, two decades since you did the law school process, um, it sounds like this has been an ongoing issue because if, you know, schools like Rutgers was trying to do their numbers and their data on this all the way back then, this sounds like a problem that's just kind of always been ongoing and this is just the latest chapter in it. Is that an accurate way of portraying this? I think so. Yeah, sounds accurate. Great. Talking to M. Carpenter, our good friend and legal eagle. Uh, let's take the other side of this. The argument you just briefly touched on it is that if schools got rid of the LSAT, it would increase gatekeeping. It would not allow students, like you said, uh, to get in that otherwise might not have uh, certain connections. Do you think that's a valid criticism? And do you think that's an ongoing problem or a problem that could get worse? I do think that's an ongoing problem and the problem that could get worse. I think that there that uh, there is a lot of gatekeeping. Um, and yeah, you know, your ability to focus only on your schoolwork and your academics is a luxury that people with certain backgrounds don't have. Um, I was somebody who went to college um, with some small loans and a couple of small scholarships and a whole lot of Pell Grant. Uh, my, my expected family contribution was zero. Uh, because my parents made very little money, so they weren't expected to foot the bill for any of that. So, um, you know, I had my tuition paid, my room and board for my first year when I lived in the dorm, and then a little bit of extra money to live on, but that's not enough. I, so I worked most of through college, um, especially toward the end of, of my undergrad years where I worked full time. Um, and there was just a lot of real life going on. So I didn't have as much time to study. I couldn't spend all evening in the library or all weekend in the library uh, or studying because I had to work. So I think that that did affect my grades, my grade point average, um, some other things that happened in my in my personal life at the time that impacted my ability to really focus. Um, so, yeah, I think that that the problem of the of taking away the standardized test for people who have um, had an easier time of it in, in undergrad, you know, may, might have a leg up. And those are, you know, generally people that don't have to focus a lot uh, on outside things and can and can focus on school, or they have, you know, a family with connections that can help to get them in. Um, on the flip side, I do understand that testing is sometimes biased in certain ways to certain life experiences, um, that there are people who just simply do not test well, that it's it's not fair for them. And I do understand that. So that's why, again, some hybrid of the two or some uh, flexibility in admissions is the important thing. 
talking to our friend M. Carpenter. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that actual law school experience. Uh, we're going to loan lead that into the student loan debate that's going on. Why law school is so expensive? Is that one of those prohibitive gatekeeping things we've been talking about it and a little bit more about the LSAT. Our talk with our lawyer friend, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com and Carpenter continues on her tell right after this. Tell our good friend M. Carpenter, one of our favorites, one of the smartest people we know, great writer, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you go check out all her work. She usually does Wednesday Ritz, but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job. So that's been a little spotty, but she did do one last week. Thank you very much for showing up to work. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about that law school experience for just a second. Law school has always been prohibitive. It's always been tough to get into. It's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point, though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into, and too expensive? Um, too expensive, yes. I think it is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs, or no, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education, goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt for my four years of undergrad. Uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was 16000 And I know it's probably a lot more than that now, obviously, in 20 years that's gone up. Um, and I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about $30,000 a year. Um, so it's not the same experience for everyone. So uh, yeah, I think the cost is is a bit expensive. So depending on what you plan to do with your law degree, and if you want to be a public defender, which I've said on here before, in my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer. If you want to make a, your career in public defense, you're, you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six-figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year, your 1L year, is notoriously difficult and, and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. Uh, yes, it's, a different, it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, take some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your, your intelligence without actually 
studying a lot. So a lot of people don't make it, don't come back at the end of your first year, your second year. A lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone. Um, unfortunately, that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back. So it, it's, um, it's a hard balance. See, this is the thing people talk about lawyers talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. This is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing, isn't it? I think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a, a huge job. There is, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income-based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which, you know, you're loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the, the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of, to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, they're, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love, I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school. I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you do make, it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So yes, you, I'll agree with you. You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expenses when I say that. Um, but I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's a um, I don't, I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, $200,000 worth of debt for their, their legal education. I certainly did not. Uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools. So, you know, help to help them get that high paying job and, and, and it might work out for them, but you can go to a um, school uh, perfectly perfectly good law school like I did, WVU. It's not uh, Harvard, it's not Yale, but I'm doing just fine. And I know, you know, I have classmates who have, who went on to firms and, and are doing very well. So I think that, you know, you don't have to go into six-figure or, or double six-figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it, you, just, you know, adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not, incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case. Certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, do I wish that I had less debt? Yes. I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it at the time, a lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year. You are not allowed to work outside of uh, maybe perhaps a work-study job 
at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously, um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not. Is that antiquated, though? I mean, is it we've seen it with like, things like sports, they relax standards where, where people can work now other areas with things like the gig economy with technology where people can basically work online and make a good living or have side gigs or be a, you know, you can be an Instagram superstar. I'm so told I'm not on Instagram, but I hear tell there's folks that can do that sort of thing, make money at it. I'm just, I'm just for the example though, is it antiquated to say, no, you can't work a job during law school because with things like the gig economy, there's a lot more flexibility and what is defined as work. Is that something that should be reviewed? You know, it may be, may be antiquated. Like you said, maybe it's not that way anymore. Um, I know some students worked anyway. I worked. I did. I had, but I had a, um, a work study job on campus. So maybe it didn't count, but I still worked full time. So, um, or as close as I could get with that job. But yeah, um, again, if you're not cutting it, if your grades are not good enough and you're because you're working full time, then, and, you know, they can, there's other ways they can just, you know, you can go on academic probation, you can lose your, um, you know, lose your spot in the class. So I don't think it's necessary to prohibit from work. And that is a, a good point that maybe that's changing. But uh, the extent to which you can have a job and do be successful in law school will vary person to person. But it's not, it, I, I agree with you that these days, that's probably, it may be less common than it was 20 years ago. Um, not sure. Talking to M. Carpenter, our friend. Okay, you've been open about it. You've wrote about it. You've talked about it. I've talked to you about it because it keeps coming up. Where do you land on student debt? Um, big push now. Uh, there's more talk that President Biden might do some kind of a forgiveness or a forbearance on student loan debt. You have been very open that there was no way you could have gone to college, let alone law school, without student debt. Um, you've talked about it openly. You just talked about having to carry that date. Where do you fall on something like student loan forgiveness? Well, it's, it's a troubling topic for me. Um, on the one hand, yes, I, I, uh, experienced the, the burden of my debt, especially earlier in my career when I wasn't making as much money. Um, but I never, you know, regretted it. I, I still believed that, it, you know, we were raised and I think most kids these days are still raised and I'm guilty of sort of pushing my children that way as well. We were raised to believe that a college education is necessary, that it's a, a goal that you should want to achieve um, if you're going to have success. And, you know, I may be old fashioned. I, I still believe that. Yes, I know there are trades that make a lot of money and that would be fine with me as well. But I still am very uh, encouraging of my children that their plan should be to go to college. And a lot of us grew up with that. And so um, straight out of high school in, the, in May and into college in August, you know, there's not much a, a break in between. And I think if I had taken a break to, you know, get a job instead and, and try to save money, I don't know that I ever would have actually gone back or at least maybe later in life I would have I don't know if I'd taken a year off or two years off at that stage of life if I would have actually ended up going to college so um, but you know now I have these these student loan bills I'm still paying every month and do I need debt forgiveness I, me personally no I can pay my bills <laughs> right now I have the money I have enough income to to pay the bills but I'm lucky and I understand that. Um, what I do think is that if there was some forgiveness, uh, means testing, I think is is important would be an important part of that. 
I don't think everybody needs it. Um, I understand the argument that we end up with a lot of uh, middle and upper class people benefiting and the um, people who didn't go to college or didn't get, um, you know, degrees where they're making a lot of money that they end up uh, shouldering that burden. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. And um, I, I don't like the argument when I hear it of, I paid my loans, why didn't you, uh, or why shouldn't you? Um, you know, there's a lot of things where things get better in the future than they were for past generations. And I don't like the it's not fair argument so much. Um, but so, yeah, I think overall a means-tested arrangement would be um, something I would support. Um, an interest, you know, when somebody's been paying for 20 years and they've paid off more than they borrowed and they still owe more than they've paid off, something is wrong with that system. Uh, my loans are not like that, but, um, you know, those are, those are, I find to be quite insidious. And I think that, you know, those loans are signed for and agreed to by um, 18 and 20 year old kids who've been told their entire lives that they have no choice. They've really got to go to college if they want to be a success. And, you know, they're think they're doing the right thing. And then now you have, you know, people pointing their fingers at them and telling them they're bums and they just want handouts. And, you know, how dare you complain that you can't afford, you know, a car or a house because you have $200,000 in debt and you've been paying it for 15 years. So there's things that can be done, I think, on um, short of full out forgiveness that I would support. Uh, M. Carpenter, wonderful conversation. Always enjoy talking to you. Um, you do wonderful work as our senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. I promise you folks, we could not do it without her. Um, let folks know where they can find your writing and your social media, and they can all follow you, which I should do since I was, I think, one of your first Twitter followers, and I think you were one of my first ones. So tell everybody how they can join our merry band of misfits. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at WVSquireS. Um, and you, of course, on uh, can find me on Ordinary Times, where I'm, sometimes I write long form, sometimes I do my writs on Wednesdays. Um, sometimes I'm in the comments sometimes. section. The- <laughs> sometimes I, Hey, I'm busy. Um, but yeah, please, if you can follow me on Twitter, that'd be great. It's ridiculous that Andrew has double the followers that I do. So, uh, help me to correct that. Um, I say the world is as it is, but we'll have to leave it there and disagree <laughs> on that. Uh, you are marvelous and wonderful. Thank you so much. Our friend M Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll talk to you again soon, ma'am. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Back to Hertel. Just want to mention this real quickly because it's a story we're going to work on covering here in the soon future. Remember, we talked about Boris Johnson getting in a little trouble for having a big old party during the COVID lockdown. Well, his counterpart, his opposition, uh, his opposite number in the Labor Party, who stands across the dispatch box for him during PMQs on Wednesday morning, which you ought to be watching. They're very entertaining. Uh, Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, to you. Uh, turns out he's on video having a beer out in public during the COVID lockdown era. So he has came out and said, I will quit if I'm fined over the lockdown beer. There is a police investigation going. If it is found that he broke the rules, 
he is offered to step down as the leader of labor. So he's either very confident or very foolhardy. Um, from the Times uh, UK, uh, Starmer said that he would resign if found to be culpable or in breach of the rules. This comes at an interesting time. Uh, the UK, of course, just had local elections in which Labour did pretty well, especially in London. Uh, we're working on getting one of our UK contributors on to talk about those elections in the next day or two and break them down for us. And we'll ask him about this story. What do you do when both the main leaders and the opposition are both breaking the COVID rules? Fun times for our friends in the UK. We'll follow this story as it continues to develop. Always something entertaining going on across the pond with our friends over there. One reason we keep up with it. More Hertel right after this. Now, welcome back to Hertel Show. We try to end on an uplifting note. This one gets a little complicated before it gets to the uplifting part, but it's something we cover frequently on here. You're not going to talk about justice unless you're going to talk about restorative justice. That's giving people chances. And uh, this is a good story of that from the Washington Post. After spending 27 years in prison, Kent Brewer looks forward to going to work every day where he sees green open spaces and quote people that are like family brewers, 69 years old, who has a slight frame but a firm handshake and is a full-time employee at the Chettleham Veterans Cemetery in southern Prince George's County. His job is made possible through a partnership between Maryland's Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services and the Department of Veteran Affairs to hire honorably discharged veterans who are incarcerated to work at the state veteran cemeteries once they are released. The program is part of an effort to reduce barriers and help people in prison reenter communities. Our goal is to see all veterans who have experienced incarceration successfully re reintegrated back into the communities in which they live, said George W. Owings, Secretary of MDVA. This partnership is one way of doing that. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity to connect those that are in our system or have served time in our system that are veterans and reconnect them to something that at times I'm sure can be very emotional to them. Uh, here's the trick to this whole program, though. As part of the program, the people are given a state position identification number, guaranteeing their employment and pay as a state employee, said Russell C. Ware, Director of Cemetery Memorial Programs for the MDVA. Brewer went through the pre-release program while at Dorsey Run Correctional Facility and was released February 14th. He became a full-time employee at the Veterans Cemetery on March 9th. Uh, we believe in the system so much that we've actually reserved positions at the cemeteries for this program. When a state position identification number became available for Brewer at Chetlinham, Superintendent Demetra Johnson said she knew she wanted him on her team. Johnson said Brewer's work at the cemetery covers a little bit of everything. He fixes and realigns headstones. He cuts grass. He even operates heavy equipment like an inloader. And he takes a lot of pride in what he does. Brewer was a Coast Guard veteran. During the Vietnam era, he faced difficulties with substance abuse and was in and out of prison. And at the age of 43, pled guilty to a murder he committed during an argument while high on drugs. He served 27 years for that crime. Quote, when you're on drugs, the only thing that matters is what you can do to satisfy your addiction. I learned that in prison, people matter. Your family matters and that strangers matter, Brewer said. It just dawned on me that what you've done is wrong. It's terrible and you have to straighten this out. And that's the effort I've been putting into this. While in prison, Brewer became a tutor to help others in prison learn how to read and write, joined a Quaker community, and helped train a service dog through a program that provides the dogs to wounded veterans. Ramona Buck, who attended the recent news conference, met Brewer when he was incarcerated. She and a group of Quakers started a worship group there, which Brewer joined. Buck and her husband kept up with Brewer over the years, and upon his release, even assisted him with things like housing in a car. 
Kent is a remarkable human being, Buck said. She helped others who were bullied in prison through his kindness. Brewer says he applies his work ethic to his job every day and hopes to work at the cemetery for as long as he can. Two of Brewer's brothers are veterans, and one of them is buried at the cemetery he now works. I know I have somewhere to go every day, Brewer said. It's been a blessing. Things just fell into place like I never dreamed. Owings and Green praised Brewer at the recent news conference. Owens describing him as a true asset to the cemetery and a, quote, focused and dedicated employee. Mr. Brewer, we're proud of you, Green said. We're proud of your hard work, your commitment to your success that has allowed this opportunity to be possible and the example you set for others. There's all the data in the world that the recidivism rate for convicted felons and criminals that get out of prison all starts with their ability to get an income, get a job, and put their life back together. And when those hurdles aren't cleared very, very quickly, once they get out of prison, they almost always fall back upon bad habits and criminal ways. Getting them guaranteed jobs coming out of prison, pre-qualifying them, getting them ready to go, and having them that success seems like a great idea. Let's do some more of that. Have a lot less crime because we have a prison system and a justice system that stops making career criminals. If we can rehabilitate folks, we should. Good old Mr. Brewer. May he take good care of that sacred space full of our honored dead for as long as he possibly can. That'll do it for her tell today. Make sure you're subscribed uh, wherever you're watching or listening to this program, the YouTube channel, or on any of the podcasting platforms. And nobody's going to say a word if you follow on multiple places. That's just fine, too. Numbers are through the roof. We so appreciate y'all staying with us. We really appreciate it. Lots of great stuff coming up the rest of this week. If you missed anything, Twice on Sunday show recaps all of last week with five great interviews, and you can go watch the full episodes, uh, either on the Good Talks uh, breakouts of the interviews or the full episodes. Look at them, find them, make sure you share them. That only costs you a click. The subscription only costs you a click. It'll always be free because as long as you're listening, we're going to keep doing it. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. Take care. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.